0: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I hope you tuned in last week to our show on breathing as we introduced the topic of today's show. Last time, we were talking about breathing exercises and then got into just a little bit of the theory behind them. So, for example, in practices like Qigong, where the breath is actually seen as containing or being equivalent in some way to life force or energies of some sort or another. And so we kind of hinted at some... Well, it hinted at the at the vast like the vast multitude of belief systems and worldviews in which spirit or the breath is fundamental in some way, and one of those systems which we're going to get into into today is Stoicism. Just as a uh, a brief background, Stoicism probably isn't what you think it is. That's kind of a common. Uh, common misconception is that the Stoics who were kind of an ancient uh, Greek philosophical school um, and then a Roman school as well, that they, that they are or were what we now think of as Stoic, kind of like stiff upper lip, um, bottled up emotions, just kind of like the Vulcans of um, you know uh, the philosophical tradition. In fact, that's not really what they were about at all. Um, it's, so we can't project back our, our meaning of stoic, uh, of stoicism onto what they were actually all about. So you can get an idea of, the, uh, of what they were all about by, um, well, you can read someone like Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor and a stoic. His book, Meditations, is, um, kind of his, his, uh, meditations and thoughts on, um, on just observations of life and his 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 place in life and how he approached um, just being a human and being an emperor and applying the philosophical principles from Stoicism in his life and along that lines um, next week we're going to be discussing that aspect of Sto of Stoicism the kind of the practical art of living as they called it so um, a book on if you want to get into uh, if you want to get into the practical side of things, I'll just give a hint for next week. And that's the this book, for example. There's a ton of them because uh, Stoicism has experienced kind of a resurgence in the last 10 or 20 years. This is one of the most well-known ones by William B. Irvine, A Guide to the Good Life. So this is almost exclusively dedicated to the practical aspects. So these are like the, the actual exercises that and practices that you can put into practice in your life to be a better Stoic. But the aspect we're going to be talking about today is more the cosmology. So what the Stoics actually thought about the nature of the world, the nature of reality. Because like many philosophical systems, um, and especially the Greek ones, they were an entire system. So they um, they had a cosmology that went along with their ethic, with their practice. So, for the stoics they they gave they placed a great importance on cosmology and also logic and practice and ethics, um, depending on which philosophical school you 're looking at, you might find different um, emphases placed on those like the the cynics, for example didn 't place much value at all on the cosmology or the philo- philosophizing; they were purely kind of Um, in the practical mode and then you had something like the academy like plato's academy that were more focused on the theory on the philosophizing and less um, less worried about the actual implementation implementation of those principles in daily life the stoics i think um, had a a more balanced a more 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 balanced view um, of the theory and the practice because the two not the two were important, but they also supported one they supported one another. So the practice came out of the worldview. Um it was grounded in the worldview. So that's what we're going to be kind of focusing on today with um the previous show on breath and breathing as kind of a launching point. Because for the Stoics, they were for for one, they were materialists and monists. And um, what that basically means is that they thought they weren't dualists, so they didn't think there were two types of fundamental stuff in the cosmos. They thought there was one type of fundamental stuff, and materialists, because they they saw the entire world, everything as being material in some uh, in some way or another. So there, it wasn't like there was a a transcendent, otherworldly god or um, realm of forms, or something like that, that informed the world. It was it was all a gradation of one thing from the lowest to the highest. There was so it wasn't. Um, it was kind of a complex worldview. It wasn't materialism as we think of as materialism today, where it's just you have one stuff and that's it. You know, we've got basic um, it, like the modern materialist worldview is that we have one stuff, matter, what we think of as matter, the physical things that make up. Uh, the world from um, basically subatomic particles, and that's it. So you'll, the hardcore materialists today they reduce everything to matter. Whereas for the Stoics, w- there was one thing, matter, but it but it it manifested in different ways, in different degrees. So you did have such a thing as mind, but mind was a finer gradation, or finer, um, yeah, finer gradation of the, the 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 primal stuff that made up. Um, inorganic matter. Now, the, the substance that they identified as this, this fundamental stuff was what they called pneuma. Um, that's the Greek word for it. We might say pneuma, as in pneumatic, like pneumatic tubes. It was spirit or breath. So there's right away there's a um, correspondence with the uh, early Christian tradition. Because in the earliest writings of Christianity, in the letters of Paul, he go he 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 repeatedly refers to the pneuma or the numa. He refers to um the that would be like the Holy Spirit or the spirit of something or other, spirit of life, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, and the spirit among everyone. Like it's there's spirit stuff all over um, early Christianity, and the the worldview at the time, like the the. The way of looking at the world and thinking about the makeup of the world was um, arguably predominantly stoic at that time. At least that's the argument of one of the guys that we'll be talking about, um, whose book we'll be looking at a little bit today. So there was this stuff that made up the, the universe and everything in it, this pneuma, this breath, this spirit. And that was actually a later development of stoic thought, because early on, um, the, the primary element was seen as fire, and it was later on that it, it got adapted to air. So Numa was perceived and thought of as a kind of fiery, airy substance. So it was warm, it was hot, it was breathy, and it was essentially equated with the spirit or the breath of God, because the Stoics were not materialists in the sense of Everything is just matter, but, like I said, you know, it's kind of a more complex materialism. They did believe in God, like a unitary, um, original, fundamental consciousness or agency, but it was um, more like the panentheism of, like, Griffin and Whitehead, that the universe is kind of, like, inside the mind of God, and the mind of God is inside every bit of... The universe
1: so it's it's the embedding matrix of everything yeah. that is yeah so
0: yeah. it's it's and, and from this everything comes out of it so the the qualities of this pneuma are um intelligence reason um like logos logic the 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 original word you know like you find in the gospel of john and <clears throat> this this pneuma like i said it's in various gradations so you have these almost like phase changes in this substance, in this cosmic substance, this cosmic breath. So the breath exists in these various levels of what they call tonus or tension. So the most tense um, form that, well, I don't know if if this is exactly how they'd phrase it, but this is the the picture, you know, when reading the concepts, this is the picture that develops in my mind, that the most tense would be the, the very basic matter, um, the, like the lowest form of Numa, and then above that there's a uh, the, the Numa takes a different tension, and that would be like the animating soul the the psyche, which animates all um, organic beings, so you can have animals that have a basically animals and humans would share this soul level Numa then when you get to humans, you have a further gradation of pneuma which is the the nuos the mind so this is where you actually get the the ability to reason about things to to be a, a rational being and then um, above that you'll have another level that would be more like the divine um <clears throat> divine mind or divine pneuma and one one of the reasons or maybe not a reason but like a description of why they thought of numa as fiery is that in that, in that worldview, in that philosophical system, the gods were equated with the heavenly spheres. Right, so they saw stars and planets and the sun, comets. All of these things were heavenly spheres and identified with beings. So they were all of these heavenly objects were um, beings of some sort, agents. Mm-hmm. They uh, they had mind. So the heavenly bodies, the the highest. Um, the highest level of beings that were observable were these heavenly bodies, and so that was the stuff that made up their bodies was Numa. They were made out of this fiery um, airy substance so that would be that would be the kind of like a level above the um, the human level of Numa and there 's all kinds of um, well because it was so fundamental there 's all kinds of different directions you can go in with looking at um, this kind of um, this pneumatic way of looking at the world but just to tie it in to start out with with the with our show last week is that for the for the stoics this is the the point we were making is that for the stoics the fundamental thing about reality is breath in some sense mm-hmm. that they're, that the the human mind the human organism is somehow like infused with this universal cosmic breath or energy or life force, and that is, you know, it, we'd, it's hard to say whether there was a transfer of um, like traditions and knowledge between cultures that led to that to, to this kind of almost universality of the the view of breath being so important, or if it was a uh, kind of just a spontaneous. Um, you know, development of similar systems. But it is very, very interesting that the this cosmic substance, this this air, the well, maybe it's just because air is so universal, you know, everyone breathes. Mm-hmm. And so different, well, similar beliefs kind of cropped up in relation to air because air is so important to life. But with this kind of extra something added to it, because air isn't just this you know, this gas that you breathe, there's something There's something uh, more to it that gives it an added significance or importance. Well, and
1: the fact that it sustains life. I mean, you could say air in the form of wind has certain effects. I mean, I'm sure they made some connection between that and weather, but this extra added component, air when added to a living body, is what sustains it because if you took the air away, mm-hmm. the living body... <clears throat> doesn't live anymore yeah um the other thing i thought was really interesting is is they already had the concept of this this pneuma being cyclical that it went Mm -hmm. back and forth between its you know generative ground and its manifestations which i which Mm -hmm. i thought was pretty cool because that's actually usually thought of as as an eastern idea Mm. so somehow that made it across
0: (laughs) yeah they even had this idea of the well, they were kind of the some of the early catastrophists of their kind, right? So they thought that the early, the the world and the universe, the cosmos, went through a periodic like uh, destruction and creation, and that this was pneumatic in nature. So eventually, the time would come when the world would be destroyed by pneuma, by fire, by this this fiery, um, you know, cosmic substance, and that would be that's kind of the cycles. So you've got the 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 destruction. Um, and then the rebirth, kind of like this phoenix.
1: Yeah. Thing well, going they, on. they didn't consider it a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It was just like all things were gathered back into the primal pneuma mm-hmm. and recreated again.
2: Well, just... and another important connection. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was that the the Stoics uh, connected the pneuma and the logos mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. in a very important way, so yeah. that you know, along with breath there's also the word Mm -hmm. and with the word you have intelligence and you have rationality and you have a higher some higher divine force that's taking place and working throughout the entire cosmos so that's uh... i think a a principal reason why when you're studying uh, stoicism it's so important if you're studying the practical stuff to study their their worldview as well because it only it all fits together in a very important way you have to have um, the The highest um, thing to aim for, you have to have this god like uh, being really, in order to make sense of all these other aspects and it, you know to understand why is there this rational force in the cosmos, what is its place? And what is your relationship uh, to this rational force, and what ought you to do with this with this knowledge? That's where the practical stuff takes place. but as you're saying, like it, it all comes back to their view of the universe as a biological organism, which is one big difference in the, the kind of brands um, of of materialism is that theirs isn't a mechanical materialism. Right. It's a biological materialism. Yeah, it's organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very organic. The universe is a living, is a living thing and you are part of it. And all of their ideas of fate and like the cyclical things, they all, they all uh, come out of this, this really critical idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's like I said at the beginning, like the, the, the theory is integrally tied with the practice. So um, we'll just, before I get into that, I want to just point out if the, the book, the Irvine book that I mentioned before, that's kind of purely practical. It's more, like a, it's more like a modern self-help book, but based on early Stoic ideas. But if you want an academic look, introduction to Stoicism and all the kind of, um, you know, all the nitty-gritty, sometimes boring, but other times interesting ideas involved, you can check out, uh, this one's pretty good, it's Stoicism by John Sellers um so kind of an introductory textbook that goes over all of the all the basics so their um their logic physics ethics and um associated ideas mm-hmm. but the if um one one really interesting portrayal or um how do i put it just way of describing that. Um, that link between the theory and the practice is actually by a New Testament scholar, Trolls Engberg-Peterson. And he wrote two books on Stoicism and its relation <laughs> to early Christianity. He also wrote um, a couple books, I, I think it was a couple books, um, strictly devoted to um, Stoicism and his interpretation of kind of the the main ideas of, of Stoicism. So this is the book that... Um, we'll be mentioning today, it's called Cosmology and Self in the Apostle Paul, the Material Spirit. So he's arguing that there is a kind of fundamental Stoic cosmology at the root of the letters of Paul. But the idea that he developed in his other books, so the one he devo- the one he devoted strictly to Stoicism and the book he wrote before this called Paul and the Stoics, is... This idea that, because of the nature of the universe, because there is this this universal stuff that the universe is made of and that is essentially the mind of God the mind stuff of God that that can that is logos or reason that there there's something fundamental about intelligence and um, specifically divine intelligence and it's that intelligence that infuses and is kind of like a spark in every um, in every human being so through a so the process goes something like this. If a person comes to realize that they are a spark of the divine, that they have divine reason within them, then that understanding then kind of creates this closer identity between them and the divine reason. And now if they understand and feel and experience that identity with, uh, with kind of the, the ultimate the 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 unifying principle and and being of the universe, then they can't but act rationally. It has this transformative effect, and that is kind of the goal of Stoicism to reach the ideal of the the level of the Stoic sage. And at that level, the Stoic sage is kind of this this um, austere but joyful. Um, sage-like being who always does the right thing because that's essentially what the the goal is to to learn what the right thing is to do in every situation and to do it because or go ahead
1: i was going to say that that also part of the practice was although they never used the word seemed to be an alignment or an attunement Mm -hmm. that that the more you embodied these principles of order and balance and, and recognizing the cyclicality of your life, you have good times, you have bad times and, and, mo- you know, modulating your response to them, you would enlarge your ability to be a receptacle of this pneuma. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah.
0: And so you, there's this, connection this kind of pull towards the logos that transforms your mind and your and therefore your behavior so that you become this stoic sage that is this I, this exemplar who's always doing the right thing and then after that one of uh, like uh, a corollary or a um an implication of that new state that you find yourself in is that you are now identified with all of the other rational beings around you so you create this or you become almost a member of this new club of rational beings who act well with each other or towards each other, so it's this um this kind of um yeah new club uh <laughs> co- <laughs> cosmopolitan like they are like citizens of the of the cosmos right, so there was this community element to to stoicism and that kind of determined your interactions with other people and the, the way you lived with other people and the way you behaved with other people. So there was a tr- almost like a religious a religious transformative aspect to to this um this philosophy and that that had certain implications for how to behave in the world because because was because everything was kind of one nature, one cosmos. There must be right ways of doing things, right ways and wrong ways. And when you were doing the right thing, they'd call it something like um, you're doing. What's the specific phrase they use? Like in a, in a in accordance with nature or something mm-hmm. like that. Like there was a there was acting according to nature. If you were acting according to nature, nature you were acting rationally and doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And doing the right thing looked a particular way. There were Um, There were certain things you just did and certain things you didn't.
1: Well, this would be Nature with a capital N, Right. You know, as opposed to, you know, the lion out on the plane eating something was acting according to nature. But as a rational human being, you probably didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So there was a higher order Mm -hmm. there.
0: So the...
1: Also, I would say, too, that, that they felt it incumbent upon themselves to be acting out the divine reason, like to to, I mean, if you want to go off into Jordan Peterson territory, it's probably where he got it that it was their duty to enhance the order of their environment by acting well, by being an example, by creating you know, a higher level of interpersonal react, you know, actions and how you behaved within the world, but that you would show uh, an. In- you know, a, b- a better way to be.
2: And I, yeah, I just want to interject really quick too, and say that a lot of these uh, the Stoics were like unsung heroes of just unbelievable uh, character and and intelligence and wit. And that you know, in the, the history of Western philosophy, you know, they kind of get all lumped together. But they, you know, they were there was a lot of debating and a lot of discussion, and and you know that none of them considered themselves in slaves to the founders or to the the ones who you know systematized logic, and and that there's this general aura that the that they had a, a stale system that was kind of based off of of Aristotle, um, when in fact their uh, their logic was quite different from Aristotle's. And and, uh, and I, from my reading in the 20th century, it sounds like um, logicians rediscovered their work with new eyes when they discovered the propositional calculus and realized that, um, that they were onto a, a completely different track of, of logical thinking that was quite um, novel for the time. It was a huge was a huge step forward and it was it wasn't like the syllogism of Aristotle, which has been criticized for, in a, for a number of reasons, which you know we won't get into here, but um, that they had a, a much more action oriented and um, practical and something, and even um, in some cases like uh, like Boolean, it sounds like you would you would probably be writing some of their logical codes in a mm. in um you know in your coding software rather than you know it, Socrates was a man type stuff. But it was um that's uh, yeah they're they're really unsung heroes of our history and they have made a huge impact that you know is far greater as you're suggesting, Harrison, with the connection to you know Paul and it's much, it's far greater than just the idea of having a stiff upper lip.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of one of the, that's one of the remarkable things about the, just the, the legacy of stoicism is that most people don't realize it. And even, even philosophers don't realize it. Like this guy, William Irvine, that's his name, right? Yeah. In his, in the introduction of this book, he gives a bit about a bit of his story and how he discovered the Stoics. He's, Basically, a philosophy professor, and didn't know anything about them mm-hmm. for the you know for the majority of his professional career. He just he, because his his professors hadn't assigned any of the readings any any readings of the original Stoics. So he had just the idea that they must be like what everyone else thinks Stoics are just these stiff upper stiff stiff upper lip type guys. Mm-hmm. So finally, he was reading a book by a novel by Tom Wolfe, where one of the characters um, a
2: man in full, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the one of the characters encounters the Stoic writings and then starts spouting off Stoic stuff throughout the the novel, and um, so that intrigued him, and he started reading him, and ev- essentially converted to Stoicism after that. After <laughs> after an investigation, and became a practicing Stoic. Mm-hmm. So he basically he wrote this book as a a Stoic guide because one didn't exist until that point. He wanted to make like a, a modern day. How to be a Stoic, you know, how to implement um, Stoic ideas and practices into your daily life, and it's just remarkable that that such an important and interesting system, um, with so many um, kind of branches and tendrils into our modern, into the the our our intellectual history, mm-hmm. um, and cultural history, especially through Christianity, that it is. Not realized and talked about, and more widely accepted.
1: Well, I think different portions of the elements that eventually have culminated in our society have grabbed different pieces of it, mm-hmm. and so they've come in piecemeal, but never presented as part of the original system they sprang from. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of blame Paul for some of that.
0: <laughs> well, getting <laughs> to <thank> him. <laughs> yeah, well, getting to Paul—that's one of the interesting <laughs> things—is like because we don't. Because we don't have this kind of conscious awareness of what stoicism is and um, and how it might apply to certain things, then when we read a text like the New Testament, we miss we miss out on what it's actually saying so that's one of the really interesting things about Engberg Peterson's work is that he basically lays out some of the Stoic ideas and then shows how they're right there on the surface in in these early texts and by doing by just engaging in that uh procedure that that exercise you 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 see that the some of the things that Paul was saying were first of all really weird like way weirder than um, than you might think that christian theology is in the first place, and kind of <laughs> um almost like sci fi levels of weird um like there's some really really strange and and fascinating things going on there like for instance i mentioned that the heavenly bodies are made of pneuma and and okay so you've got the heavenly bodies made of pneuma in paul's letters um engberg peterson shows that that you have the same idea there that paul talks about the heavenly bodies he talks about the about the stars and there there are different glories for different levels of of things so you know a man has has his type of glory a star as it has its own glory but that the the believers the community of christians will become essentially stars in the in the sky they will be, become somehow literally stars in the sky and by putting together these texts the picture that forms is that through some process the christian community will actually acquire heavenly bodies for their own they will inhabit heavenly bodies so what's going on is that the the body of flesh is like slowly dying. It's this entropic, um, deathly thing that is just decaying, and within that decaying body is growing and filling up those decaying spaces with heavenly pneuma. So a new spirit body, which is a pneumatic body, is being formed within, like Paul himself, and within the the early, these early Christians, and creating. What will be their resurrection body, as it might be called? But it's actually a, a a body composed of of pneuma, composed of this different type of stuff. So, I mean, we have all these ideas in in just mainstream Christianity, but also New Age religions and stuff about like the astral body and the spirit body and things like this. But when you when you hear it or read it stated in such kind of just basic terms, it it it's very strange. You have this it's an it's an it's this actual body being um, being grown and generated out of this divine, like fiery plasma stuff, mm-hmm. that is that is then inhabiting inhabiting the space that that has been lost to the decaying parts of the of the fleshly body, and that at the time of the like the parousia, the coming of Christ, the resurrection, whatever that is, that the that the whole world like with the Stoics is going to inha- is going to experience this. Um, this transformation into heavenly pneuma, into into God's numa, so there will be all the fleshly parts, all the parts that aren't that don't have that initial portion of spirit to sustain them will be burned away. Um, so all of the all the fleshly parts will be burned away, but the the body that has been like generated within that old body will be the one that lives on and 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 lives in this new world, this new uh, pneumatic world. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, like I said, it's just it's it's kind of far <laughs> out stuff. Yeah, it's pretty trippy.
1: Well, the th- the thing is too is that Paul obviously had an extraordinary experience of some sort. You know, it just life changing down to his to mm. the soles of his feet, and in one sense he may have been taking the concepts that he could grasp them under mm-hmm. and expressing it. Yeah, but. You know, it's on the other hand, you know, I've been going through this book too and he's pretty, pretty clear that this this is the process he thinks is going on. And
2: well Harrison, you you uh you also like to tell a story about how Paul thinks that he interacts with that with the congregations too, right? Yeah.
0: Well, um like how he me- how
2: um his own pneuma okay. interacts with
0: Yeah, so so for Paul his experience with uh, like the risen Christ, whatever that was for him, that gave him a portion of the the divine pneuma of Christ's spirit. So literally, um, a portion of Christ's mind, spirit, inhabited Paul, entered his body in some way, and is now growing in his body. And when, uh, and so for Paul, the his missionary activity is to now dispense with and disperse this this pneuma, this spirit to other people. So basically through his speech and through his letter writing, these are both um, what Engberg-Peterson calls bodily practices. They're um, practical practical, um, behaviors and actions that Paul takes to transfer the spirit from himself to others. So kind of like the you could think of it in terms of like the Last Supper, the dispensing of the of the body of Christ, mm-hmm. because the body of Christ is the spirit of Christ, it is this heavenly pneumatic stuff. Um, the feeding of the five thousand. You could look at a lot of the parables in the Gospels as as um, kind of symbolic representations of and metaphors for this giving out of the of the spirit. So by in by engaging with Paul. Um, well, you mentioned something earlier, Corey, about about the logos and the importance of the word. Well, um, for if you think about it in terms of this worldview, the the air is what passes through your throat to produce words, right? So there was something pneumatic about speech because the air was what produced the words that came out of your mouth. So this intelligence, basically, like in your throat, was uh, was was something something divine. This was the expression of the divine, you know, through. Through your body, so for Paul, the as when speaking the truth, some um, like that spirit, ex, uh, you know, went outside of his mouth with his words and entered into the ear holes of the people listening and gave them a bit of spirit <clears throat> to then um, to then form within themselves, and that's that sharing of the spirit among all of these people tied them all together, essentially gave them a portion of the same mind. So that's where the idea of the body of Christ comes from, is that the, the body of Christ is the church. They are all sharing in something. They are all they kind of all have access to this this higher mind of which they are like appendages. Um, well, kind of like, what was that Netflix show that the Wachowski's oh, um, did? Uh, Sensate? Sensate. Yeah, so this this kind of idea of this shared consciousness. Yeah. Well, even um,
1: he speaks of the also not only was he broadening the reach uh and strengthening this Numa he also at one point says to one of his congregations i think it was um and to the philippians that you are sustaining me mm-hmm. so that they were doing something that that they could give him back to him right strengthening numa so
0: right so there was this so the If you read Paul's letters, they're very emotional, like um, his purple prose. (laughs) Yeah. Like Engberg Peterson, he says, um, he ends the book in a, in a nice way. Let me see if I can find the the last paragraph there. Okay. Well, I'm just going to read the last paragraph just to get to the last sentence, because it kind of captures what it's like to, to read Paul's letters. So he writes, um, I'll start with the sentence in the second last paragraph. So, Christ as a shape in the Galatians, we know what Paul has in mind, that the pneuma might once more be found in them as transmitted to them by Paul's own letter. So, again, this is the practice of transmitting his pneuma to them through his letter writing. But he goes on, However, just as as we took it to be the case with Paul's concrete cosmological conception of the resurrection so here too we cannot make his understanding of the concrete numa transmitting character of his letter writing our own well that's uh, engberg peterson's wh- what he's saying is that he doesn't think that the that th- this way of looking at the world is applicable to modern humans because we don't see the world the same way so we can't we can't adopt that idea as our own that's debatable because he's coming from um well kind of like a modern scientific perspective he's right in the sense that you know the the wording and stuff is out of date, but I'd say that there might be, there's probably more truth behind it than you know a modern academic is willing to give to it. But anyways, with that in mind, he says, none of us could conceivably believe that we would actually, uh, that we would be actually sending our numa to somebody else by means of a letter. Perhaps, though, if this was Paul's own conception, we can better understand why the Pauline self, his converted self merging into his apostolic self, feels so strongly present in his letters, his theory of his own letter writing may well have uh, may well have contributed to a style of writing that made that self be most vividly present. One feels that he is almost there so that's how he ends the book and it's it's pretty appropriate because you know there is ju- there is just a presence when you when you read paul's letters that's just like he's bursting out of the page at you, and that that kind of you know maybe there's something to it maybe uh you know <laughs> what what is it about something that is that um that does that that captures people you know that grasps you you know when you read something that for the first time or uh well, you read an idea for the first time or you have an experience with a person or they tell you something that just like you know it goes straight through your ears into your into your heart or your soul you know that deepest act, that deepest like recess that <laughs> part of yourself what is actually going on there well, the Stoics tried to give an explanation for what that is. that That is actually some process happening. There is something about the thing you are hearing that is changing you, that is affecting you in a fundamental way. Maybe it's not exactly as they described, but, uh, but maybe there's actually something to be gleaned and learned from that description, from the imagery that they, they have of it. Because, um, and it might just, you know, I, I, one way of looking at it in a modern sense would be in terms of information. I don't really like that way of looking at it, just because information—that the word itself, information—is so dry and bland and boring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I much prefer, you know, <laughs> heavenly numa. <laughs> but, but if you,
1: well, I what? was just thinking, you know, if information is very dry, and maybe on some level, Paul knew that his letters are very emotional, and that is a way of of cutting through. He doesn't denigrate the intellect, but it does cut mm-hmm. through. And, and, you know, create those resonances that allow you to absorb the information. Yeah. So there's just,
0: there's something about, there's something about, like, the, the truth when you hear it, for instance, that hits you in a certain way. And I want to kind of tie this back to the breathing exercises, is that, um, you know, I'm not saying that this is, that the Stoics had it all right, or that this is necessarily, a, you know, an accurate description of the way the world is. But just just to kind of picture it um, to yourself, and uh, even just because it's interesting, um, but also because there may be there may be truth in there that is um, you know hidden beneath the surface in some way. But you have this spirit that has tra- that is transmitted through speech or through writing, and it's associated with the breath and the air. Um, this is one thing that gurdjieff put into practice i mentioned gurdjieff last time as uh, when we were talking about breathing exercises because one of the things that gurdjieff did he too had his system you know his theory um, but he also had the practice of it and the practice doesn't get talked about very much because for the longest time it was basically kept secret by um you know the people that were familiar with him and the the school that kind of built uh, that built itself after his death um but the the famous book the the one that most people who are familiar with gurdjieff no is in search of the miraculous by Uspensky that pretty much lays out all the theory, but it was only in the last fifteen years of Gurdjieff's life that he put it put it into practice, and that we have accounts of how it was put in, put into practice. And there's a little bit of that um, hinted at, well, pretty obviously hinted at, so well stated explicitly, but you have to be kind of aware to realize that's what's going on in um, his last book, Life Is Real Only Then When I Am, where he gives. Um, a breathing exercise and in that breathing exercise what the way he lays it out is that um, skipping all the details you can find the you can read that book and find the exercise for yourself but tying that into his theory what's actually happening is by consciously directing um, by consciously engaging with the breath so observing the breath um, essentially breathing consciously what's actually happening for Gurdjieff in, in his system is that you're breathing in what he called active elements or higher um, higher energies or hydrogens, as he, as he called them. There are these energetic kind of particles that are in the air. And by consciously breathing, you are digesting then these elements, these particles that otherwise just get expelled and not used. And these particles, these higher hydrogens, these active elements, are actually what creates the um what he called the higher being body or the spirit body. So when you're when when you're doing conscious breathing for gurjif, you're actually digesting the material that will then create your pneumatic body that will then be able to survive death. But you won't have that body if you don't do if you don't grow it and you won't grow it if you don't do conscious breathing exercises. So it's again that's for, you know, Paul read in a Stoic light is pretty far out, and Gurdjieff just read in a Gurdjieffian light is far out because <laughs> they're both uh, they're both characters. I'll say that they're both quite uh, quite um, creative. <laughs> that's, that's the way to put it. So yeah, f- so for Gurdjieff, the these these active elements, these this you know mixing the systems a bit, this this spirit that you breathe in. Then gets digested by these processes in the body that creates a a double body, a new body that will, like I said, survive death and um, um because for for Gurdjieff, you don't automatically have a soul when you die, if you don't have a soul, then you're 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 basically going to disintegrate in some way and probably never come back. If you have the seed of a soul, the embryo of a soul, you might come back and reincarnate and you know suffer a whole lot until you learn the lessons until you finally learn how to grow uh, a spirit body and only then when you have a, a fully developed spirit body um, which is associated with what he called having real eye, um, so not the, the fake personality eye that we have the, the, the ever changing sequence of um, you know personality fragments that we have within ourselves that basically govern what we do but when we have our own solid unified self that self then has the ability to um, consciously either incarnate or go on to other worlds or who knows what. Um, but all these systems come down to this kind of mystical quality to the to the air that we breathe. Mm. And that is that kind of has the effect of re-enchanting the world. This is an observation that... Um, several theologians in the twentieth century have made, which led to uh David Ray Griffin writing one of his books, I believe it was called like The Reenchantment of the World or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. That the the world is pretty boring. Like there's not a lot of spirit in it. When you look at the, the modern scientific worldview, um there's there's not a lot to to inspire those um you no know, the feelings that you, know, you get
1: art or, or music or anything that's really worth listening or looking at
0: right, and even then like uh, something more than that because we can we all have even though we live in this in this world with this um, scientific worldview, we all have the i think the the emotions that come when we listen to music we enjoy or 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 watch something moving um, that we see on TV or in a movie but there's another level of of um you know, experience or or feeling, or just that that search for something, um, something higher, something mm-hmm. like Uspensky called it miraculous in the in the mm-hmm. in the title of the, of the book. Well, what became the title of the book? That it's, search for something extra, something more
1: that gives meaning.
0: Yeah, that gives real meaning. Mm-hmm. And
1: <clears throat> one one thing I found kind of interesting about the Stoics is uh, they didn't, even though there was this idea of assimilating more pneuma and and aligning and and acquiring this body that will, you know, survive the conflagration, the gathering in and redispersing. It didn't seem to be something that exercised them. They didn't seem to be frantic or or worried about it. It was just sort of, well, this is what you do if, if this is something that interests you. And I... I find that, you know, they weren't out proselytizing that, you know, the world is going to end and you have to do this. You know, they well, seem to be rather calm about it all.
0: That that comes down to the Stoics' <laughs> theory of emotions, right? Their, their psychology, which we'll get into uh, in our next show. Because for a Stoic <laughs> doesn't worry about things that they have no control about, right? So yeah. if the world's going to end tomorrow, it's not going to bother them because they have no control over it, right? The, the, it's no, it wouldn't be rational to, to fear <laughs> Um, you know, to fear something that you have no control over, so just get on with it you, know, you, you, know, m- you meet your death joyfully, basically um, How are we
2: doing for time? Where are we at uh, forty six
0: okay well, um do you guys have anything else to say
2: uh yeah, I'd just say if there 's one thing that you know that uh, i I would hope that everyone takes away from this show it 's that you know stoicism is part of a tradition um that goes back years and years and years and years and years, but, you know, that we can point to probably um, students of Socrates, people who are impressed by Socrates and his death, his sacrifice, and other brilliant individuals, um, and that has continued on and and inspired the early Christians, and that continues to this day to inspire and to offer solutions to extraordinary problems, and that it's it's something worth investigating i would i would definitely rec- highly recommend investigating the systems um the ethics the logic the the physics of stoicism just uh as a way of of connecting to that you know that tradition and if there is some pneuma still left within it the of, of gathering that you know for your own self
0: <laughs> all right well i was thinking about reading just a short bit to close out the show. He Engberg Peterson in this book, he gets into what Paul must have meant by um, you know, such things as faith and the faith's relation to knowledge and you know what he actually meant, because in most modern Christianity it's become like um, you know, if you, you basically just need to have faith in in Jesus, right? And that means you'll be saved, or that you are saved. But first of all, is that actually in Paul, and what does that actually mean. So for Engberg-Peterson, when he's looking at this from this Stoic perspective, there's a much higher emphasis placed on actual knowledge and understanding. So it's not like you just believe in something blindly, but that you actually understand something, and the, the root of faith is that understanding. So I'll read a few Uh, A paragraph and a a few sentences that just kind of say this in, in his own words. So he says, very importantly, the texts are speaking of how those human beings have acquired knowledge of God, or Christ for the Philippians. The theme is one of cognition, of the acquisition of knowledge. Paul is speaking of the way in which, in conversion, his addressees and he himself have come to know God as a result of God's knowing them at that very moment. We may suppose that he is relying here on what in modern philosophical terminology has become a distinction between two types of knowledge, knowledge by direct acquaintance and propositional knowledge, or knowledge that. um, Something is thus and so. His idea may be that in conversion, human beings have acquired propositional knowledge of what God is based on direct acquaintance with God, moreover, a kind of acquaintance that has been brought about by God himself. So, um, so that's kind of, it's the total opposite of what, um, or it, uh, I'd say it's the total opposite of what some you know, modern Christians think of as the, the process of what's going on. It's that you believe, and then hopefully the you know you'll have some kind of epiphany, and or, or you never will, but you believe in God, so that kind of assures your spot in heaven. But no, for Paul, it was the experience that came first. It was it was the direct acquaintance, that actually knowing God that then gave you faith. It's like because you because you understood something very basic about the nature of reality that that was the that was the foundation of your faith that's why that's why faith was so strong is because it was actually based on knowledge not based on just believing something that someone told you so a couple other things so when this knowledge on god's part is met by the chosen ones the christians then they have the knowledge of god in order for the kind of action that flows from this knowledge to be people's own and in order for them to be, therefore, also themselves responsible for their ways, the knowledge must be their own too. In addition to, ha- to having clearly been generated by God, um, that's just in the section on it's this idea of human agency and free will. So, the for, for Paul, it's not he's not a, a, a strict determinist in the sense that like God God controls every action that, that people are doing. It's that there, <clears throat> there's this handshake that's going on between like the higher and the lower, that the 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 free will, the agency of the humans is it, of the of the lowly you know creatures is as important as the the signal coming from above, and it's where they meet that the the higher will becomes the will of the the lower beings. So the it's it's never that things are completely done for us. We're not just like puppets of like the higher power. It's that we actually in this process that Paul's talking about, become more of, more of a, um, um, like a a channel for that higher force to express itself through, but with our complete participation because it's based in knowledge and understanding.
1: He writes in another place, too. Um, it's obvious that the numa plays a crucial role in bridging the gap between God and human beings. The numa of God knows the depths of God And by receiving the pneuma that is from God, human beings obtain cognitive access to God's gifts. They now understand God.
0: Mm -hmm. And then one more to wrap it up. Um, Where to start? Okay. But the strong and exclusive emphasis on God's agency in these passages is generating the proper knowledge... um, God's agency in generating the proper knowledge must not be taken to obliterate the other results we have also reached. That the knowledge generated in this way in human beings by God is also distinctly their own. And indeed, when they do have this knowledge, then they, thems- then they are aligning themselves. And of course, also being aligned with God. It's just another way of showing that there's it is this kind of mutual process of the, the higher and the lower um, working together um, cooperatively, mm-hmm. and um, not not the, the like the lower um, kind of rebelling against the the higher impulse, and it's not the higher impulse like controlling and directing the, the lower. Mm. It's the, it is a a natural um, meeting of the two that that is you know for like the Stoics would say would be in nature. It is um, in accordance with nature. Um so very interesting stuff. If you wanna check that one out, again it is cosmology and self and the apostle Paul, the material spirit. Um a bit academic at times, but uh but no, interesting stuff.
1: He he makes it very easy. I mean, he he puts it in kind of an academic format for his peers, but it's not pedantic. In fact, he even says, I've done that deliberately. If you really want to go super dry university, go to the footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> They're crazy.
0: All right, with that said, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time.